0: For more than five years, Deep State Radio has been on top of all the key foreign policy and national security stories impacting the world. We're grateful to our members who make all of this possible and hope that you will consider supporting our work by becoming a member. Members get access to our expanded offering of exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to participate in discussions via our member Slack community, our weekly member bonus briefs, and our DSR Daily Brief newsletter delivered to your inbox each evening at 5 p.m. Members also receive all of our content via private member feed that you can add to your podcast app of choice. Join now for just $5 per month or $50 per year. Visit thedsrnetwork.com and select Become a Member. And don't miss our upcoming mini-series featuring interviews with some of the key players from David's upcoming book, American Resistance the inside story of how the Deep State saved the nation. Thank you.
1: Nine, twelve, ten, twenty-eight, two, twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio. Coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, David Roskoff, and we are doing one of those periodic discussions where we talk about a book that we really think you ought to read. This one is called Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology. It's written by Chris Miller, who's an associate professor of international history at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University, Gene Kirkpatrick, visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and Eurasia director at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. Hi, Chris. How are you? Doing well, David. Thanks for having me. Congratulations on the book. Couldn't be more timely. You managed to write a book that was so important that it forced the United States Congress into action with a bill that seems almost uh, directly, if not quite fully, adequately responsive to your book. I'd like to go back and talk a little bit about the historical narrative that underlies the book in a minute because I think it's really good. I think it's it's very compelling. It's a good read. It's a it's a fun read, but. Where I'd like to start is actually sort of where we are now, because I think it's important that people understand the nature of this issue. Why, you know, we're a podcast on national security and foreign policy, why something called chip war would be relevant. Clearly, um, we talk about it periodically in the past past few weeks as there was a standoff around the Taiwan Straits. There's a lot of concern. Uh, And I mentioned on the podcast that I went and I talked to a senior U.S. government official. And they said that somewhat prior to this uh, standoff, Commerce Department had done a study. And the study said, if Taiwan gets cut off as a chip supplier, the economic consequences for U.S. and for the planet would be catastrophic. And then he said, the intelligence community did two other studies after that study, and they made the Commerce Department study look rosy by comparison. That's it. You know the stakes are are huge. Perhaps though, you can frame those stakes as a place for us to begin.
2: Well, I think those studies are correct, uh, and the reason why there's such danger with regard to Taiwan's semiconductor supply is because the Taiwanese produce a vast number of chips and in particular produce most of the most advanced processor chips that we rely on. So today, Taiwan produces 90% of the leading edge processor chips, the type of chips you'd find in a smartphone or a PC, but also in data centers and in telecoms infrastructure. So without Taiwan's most advanced chips, it wouldn't be possible, for example, to get a new iPhone or to build out artificial intelligence capabilities and data centers. But in addition to the most advanced chips, Taiwan produces around a third of the processor chips we consume in general each year. So everything from cars to microwaves to dishwashers, almost any device today with an on-off switch has a semiconductor inside. And many of those semiconductors are made in Taiwan. And the most advanced of those semiconductors can basically only be produced today in Taiwan.
1: Yeah, and we've seen, so the the, the Illustration of the ubiquitousness of these chips and their importance at the beginning of the Ukraine war, where we saw Russian troops stealing washing machines, and we thought, how sad that the Russians started of washing machines until we then realized that what they were doing was trying to get the chips inside the washing machines because the embargo was keeping them from getting the technology that they needed, right? I mean, this the embargo is really made it impossible for the Russian arms industry to keep up with the demands of their own war, right?
2: That's right. And one of the reasons why I called the book Chip War was because, although we don't think about it, chips are absolutely vital to military power today, from guided missiles to communication systems to surveillance satellite. It all relies on chips, and modern militaries can't function without them. Now, the Russian military is are behind in this sphere because Russia is a really minor player when it comes to semiconductors. But the US military is as reliant as the rest of us on sourcing chips from East Asia. And in many advanced systems, there are chips that can only be made in Taiwan. So like Apple, like any consumer electronics firm, the Pentagon's in the same boat in terms of uh, reliance on production in Taiwan.
1: Yeah. So China makes the prospect of invading Taiwan In a war in which you could destroy the chip capacity, something that's pretty daunting for the Chinese to do, presumably.
2: That's right. And China spends more money importing chips uh, in most years than it does importing oil. China is immensely reliant on uh, foreign chip technology from the US, from South Korea, and especially from Taiwan. And so there's, I think, some hope that mutually assured economic destruction will guarantee peace in the Taiwan Straits. But I think if you look at the direction of Chinese politics over the past couple of years, you see a lot less focus placed on GDP growth as the primary goal of government policy and a lot more focus placed on foreign policy goals. And that shift in terms of China's policy calculus, coupled with the ongoing deterioration in the military balance away from the United States in China's favor, I think does raise the risk that, in fact, China does decide to move on
0: Taiwan.
1: True. Although the Chinese on a regular, pretty regular basis, and by regular, I mean throughout the past 5,000 years, tend to focus on domestic stability as the number one issue. And running out of chips would be real bad for domestic stability in China, I anticipate. But, you know, you describe a kind of strategic situation that, although it has echoes of our dependence on foreign oil, is much more extreme in the sense that a far higher percentage of advanced chips come from one small island, Taiwan. And what, I don't know what it is. 60% of chips overall come from Taiwan. How did we get here? I mean, we've, you know, the Silicon revolution, you know, which began in the fifties and sixties has been going on for a while. And uh, the, the, clear message that the economy was going to be dependent on these things has been you know apparent for fifty years and yet we don't have the capacity we're so dependent how seems like a real screw up how did that happen?
2: well that's the other aspect of the chip war is a, a battle between companies for the leading technology and one of the key factors in shaping the chip industry over the past couple of decades has been huge economies of scale that accrue to the companies that sell the most chips because the more chips you produce, the more you're able to learn from your chip making process, improve your quality, and therefore drive down the price at which you can sell chips. And so the bigger you are, the better your technology is. And over the past couple of decades, the biggest Taiwanese firm called the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company has adopted a a, a newer business model than American competitors, whereby It doesn't design any chips in house. It only manufactures chips for other companies. So it has lots of customers from Apple to AMD to Nvidia, many others from the United States. And so the volume of chips it produces is huge. And that's given it a technological edge over the past couple of years. So in the past, it was American firms that had the most advanced production technology. Intel is a great example of this. But over the last decade, TSMC, because of its immense volume and because it's executed really well, has overtaken. Intel and other companies to have the most advanced production processes as well as the largest volume. And this has been a brilliant business model for TSMC, even though it's been predicated on the increasing concentration of production in Taiwan.
1: I was once in the Clinton administration. I was the deputy undersecretary of commerce for international trade. Then for a while, I was acting undersecretary for international trade. And I would go to a lot of meetings on international economic policy. And if you ever brought up the term industrial policy, you were excused from the room. I mean, it was considered, you know, this was just after the fall of communism. It was considered something pretty close to central planning, meddling in the economy, and thereby dangerous, because the thought was, leave it to the markets. The markets will take care of everything. But of course, markets don't have national interests in mind. Markets don't have vision in terms of social development. And so now, all of a sudden, the Biden administration, with you know some bipartisan support, has, finds itself saying, hey, we can't be in this situation. We need to be making these chips here. We need to have some form of industrial policy because this has created a huge vulnerability. Describe a little bit of that evolution and what you think about it. It certainly
2: is the case that uh, in both parties, both Democrats and Republicans, there's more interest in trying to support the chip industry in the U.S. for precisely the reasons that you outlined. I I think what we've seen over the past couple of decades is that the private sector in semiconductors has done a great job in terms of innovation in terms of driving down costs, in terms of making it possible for chips to be plugged into all sorts of devices. But as you say, it's the concentration in Taiwan and the geopolitical risks that that brings that the market hasn't been able or or willing to think about. And so the administration with congressional support is going to spend $39 billion over the next couple of years to subsidize production in the United States. It's going to be Providing incentives both for American firms to build facilities in the U.S., but also for foreign firms that apply for funding, and the goal is to increase the U.S. share of chip making, especially in advanced chips, so that it doesn't keep declining as it has for the past couple of decades. And I think this is a a a useful step, but we should also be cognizant of its limitations. Thirty-nine billion dollars sounds like a lot of money, but in an industry where a single new facility for advanced chips costs twenty billion dollars, thirty-nine billion doesn't get you that far, and so. Even after the CHIPS Act money is spent, we're going to have some new production in the U.S. of the most advanced chips, but we're still going to be quite reliant under most scenarios on production in Taiwan and to a lesser extent in Korea uh, in five or 10 years' time. So I think the CHIPS Act is a good start, but the reality is it doesn't dramatically change uh, the dynamic of Taiwan being the most important producer of chips in the world.
1: Let me ask you an ancillary question. Because you uh, study Russian and Chinese history, roughly the same time we're doing this, and within the Chips Act, there's a big focus on competitiveness with China, and we we can debate whether we're entering a Cold War with China or not. We can debate whether we should, but we're clearly entering a period of tension with China over technology security, or the intersection of trade and technology and security. And there's a desire to keep the Chinese from getting a hold of our technology, keep them from getting a hold of other technologies that could give them an edge and so forth. Is it desirable? Is it feasible?
2: Well, if you look at the controls the Biden administration announced in early October, which prevent the transfer of certain types of advanced chips that are used in artificial intelligence applications to China, Uh, the goal of those controls is to limit the ability of china's military to apply ai to military systems that so it's it's fundamentally a a military competitiveness strategy executed through semiconductors and through the data centers in which semiconductors can be installed and if you think about ai we've heard a lot over the past couple of years about how data is the new oil for example or the importance of uh, advanced algorithms and that's that's all Somewhat true. But the reality is that the reason is the reason that we have more AI today than we did a decade ago is largely because chips we have today are far more powerful than a decade ago. And in 10 years' time, they'll be more powerful still. Chips improve at an exponential growth rate per Moore's law. And so if you can control access to the most advanced chips, you can cut off your adversaries from taking advantage of the most advanced computing. And that's exactly what the Biden administration is trying to do. They're trying to Limit China's advances in computing, while the rest of the world, led by the U.S., improves at an exponential rate. And the strategy is to prevent China from being able to domesticate this capability and then deploy it to its military. And insofar as uh, defense strategists, both in Beijing and in Washington, believe that autonomous systems and other AI applications will be crucial for future military power, there's a logic to trying to cut off China from being able to produce this computing power domestically.
1: For those of you who don't know Moore's Law, it was a theory sort of tossed off in an article in the, I guess, mid-60s, which suggests that the computing power of chips doubles every two years, something like that, right? And uh, we're sort of at the point now where, what is it, almost 12, 12 billion... Uh, so
2: it, a new iPhone will have 15 billion transistors on its main chip, and so each right. of those transistors will be smaller than a coronavirus.
1: My dad worked at Bell Labs, birthplace of the transistor. I sort of grew up wandering around in that environment, and uh, it, it seems we're light years away but uh, from from those days. But doubling every two years over the course of the next 10 years puts you in possession of chips that can do real AI, where you know you can imagine some of the military applications we've talked about, swarms of smart drones flying in, choosing targets, moving on from other targets, acting fairly autonomously, et cetera, et cetera. Is this you know, effort to keep China from keeping up something that can work in a world in which China trades with everybody, everybody needs to trade with China, and uh, the Chinese, you know, don't tiptoe around their national interests. They will demand that they be provided with these things. Can we can we actually achieve this, or is this kind of a gesture, uh, a manifestation of our of our hopes rather than a strategy?
2: Well, if you look at what it takes to produce advanced ships, what you find is that the software and especially the machine tools needed to produce ships are also monopolized by a small number of countries and a small number of companies. So, for example, the machine tools that do the lithography step in producing semiconductors, shining light on silicon wafers to carve patterns into the silicon, those are produced by one company in the Netherlands, which has 100% market share. And these tools took three decades to produce. They involve the flattest mirrors humanity has ever created, some of the most powerful lasers, explosions at several hundred thousand degrees Fahrenheit happening on a regular basis. So this is really, really complicated machinery. It's so hard that ASML, the Dutch company that produces these machines, have no competitors. And the same basic dynamic is true when you look at other types of the machine tools you need to make chips. There are basically five companies that play an oligopolistic role in this market, three of them in California, one in the Netherlands, one in Japan. And unless you can access machine tools from each of these five companies, you can't build an advanced chip. And so China's challenge is going to be to try to domesticate all of the tooling you need to make chips, uh, to do so in a situation of pretty strict controls in which it's now not allowed for any US firm to provide component parts or servicing or any sort of input to your production process Uh, and so i think we should assume a a fair amount of difficulty in china to to try to replicate these tools and if you look historically these five companies that i mentioned each of them has been in their market position for a matter of decades and in some cases almost half a century so the amount of unique technical capacity plus the durability of their business model will make it very very difficult for china to catch up anytime soon over some time horizon it will certainly be possible but that's probably a decade away, and uh, many, many billions of dollars of R&D and capital expenditures from the Chinese side. And so the question that China faces is, does it want to try to produce current generation technology after 10 years uh, at the cost of many billions of dollars? Because if it does so, it will be able to produce what we've got today, but will at that point be a decade ahead for the rate predicted by Moore's law. So China's in a very, very difficult position in terms of whether it wants to undertake the vast spending that trying to domesticate this technology will involve?
1: Well, they're only in a difficult position if they want to go and have a global conflict in the next 10 years. If they don't, and if they want to be patient, build these things up, let their economies grow, and put off advancing an agenda that conflicts with the US or the rest of the world for several decades, then they might be okay, right?
2: Yeah, I think if China decides it doesn't need advanced computing, then that's a a pretty straightforward strategy to pursue. I suspect that won't be the strategy China designs. Well, no, no. But
1: what, what I'm saying is, let's say they need advanced computing. People are only going to block them from getting advanced computing to the degree to which they see them as a threat. And so, you know, to the to the degree to which that becomes secondary, then they they may have an opportunity to to pursue the advanced computing. In other words, we don't need to have a war with China. Next week, right? That this could this could be put off for a long time.
2: I, I think that's right. I think if you look at what the Biden administration has done uh, with the restrictions in early October, they've they're really quite uh, substantial. And so, unless you think there's going to be enough of a shift in Chinese foreign policy to induce a shift in U.S. policy towards China, which seemed like two big jumps, I think the reality is that these restrictions are going to pretty substantial in limiting China's capabilities over at least the next couple of years. Uh, It's hard to see big changes in both Beijing and Washington undermining these uh, new rules anytime soon.
1: Well, let's look at it from another perspective. Because, you know, from our perspective here at this podcast, looking forward at international geopolitical implications is is really what we want to do. We also have tried to put a lot of restrictions on nuclear technologies and, and haven't been able to. And there does seem to be a strategic imperative here. Do you see sort of two-speed world where a bunch of countries that are left out work together as they did on nuclear power to try to gain these capabilities? I mean, you know, you see Iran providing Russia with drones at the moment, even though that's a much lower tech alternative. Do you see any possibility like that?
2: Well, when I started writing or uh, researching Chip War, one of the questions I wanted to ask answer for myself was, why is it that the North Koreans can produce nuclear weapons? Everyone can produce nuclear weapons, but ships are so monopolized. And the reality is that nuclear weapons technology has not changed much since the 1960s, whereas the capacity of semiconductors doubles every two years. And so the growth rate, the improvement rate is just extraordinarily difficult, which is why catching up to the cutting edge is very hard. I have no doubt that the North Koreans could produce 1960s quality semiconductors, but that doesn't get you very far. In 1960s, The first commercially available semiconductor had four transistors on it, and today a new iPhone has over 15 billion. Uh, So that's a hard growth rate to catch up to, which is why if you're going to rely on a second tier supply chain, you're going to be hopelessly behind. And it's actually better to just try to smuggle in the chips you need. That's what the Russians do, for example. And so if you break apart the guidance computer and Russian missiles that have been acquired in, in Ukraine, for example, you'll find the chips inside are from American, from South Korean, from Taiwanese firms, largely. Russia's adopted a strategy of smuggling rather than domestic production, because it's much easier to smuggle in a low volume number of chips, which is what you need for missiles, than it is to to actually learn how to produce those chips domestically.
1: We only have a couple of minutes left here. And I, I want to encourage people again, that Chip War is a book that they should get and read Because if they haven't gotten it from listening to this conversation, this is absolutely central stuff when it comes to national security, national economic policy. And I would add, there are very few people at senior levels of the government that actually understand these issues and are able to have the kind of informed conversation that Chris is treating us to here today. But, you know, I know because I've written a bunch of books, you know, and you go in and you think, I'm going to write a book about this. And then you do it for a year or two. And then all of a sudden, one day the penny drops and you go, holy shit, you know, that, this, this is the thing I didn't expect. This is what I'm really worried about. That's what I want. <laughs> you've done this. You've done the research. We know what the, the normal arguments are. When you look ahead, what's the thing that popped up to you and you were like, holy mackerel, this is a problem.
2: When I started this book, I had no idea that we were so dependent on Taiwan for all the chips we rely on. And you mentioned, David, the, the studies inside the U.S. government that have been done over the past couple of years. But the reality is that there's no alternative to Taiwan in the short term, which is why the current situation is so dangerous. I think many people assume like I did, oh, I'm sure if something went wrong, we could in a year or two get production lines up and running in the U.S. Well, no way. The reality is that just simply replacing the machine tools that are currently installed in Taiwan would take at least half a decade, if not longer. And if you think about the process of replacing Taiwanese production amid a crisis, last year, uh, multiple of the, the companies that make these ultra-precise machine tools faced delays in their production processes because of the semiconductor shortage. There was a shortage of chips, and we had a shortage of machine tools needed to make chips. We'll run that experiment forward in a scenario where there's an emergency in the Taiwan Straits, where we've lost access to one third of the processor chips we rely on each year, the effect would be just disastrous. And so I hadn't fully realized the extent to which these concentrations in the chip industry were so economically important for not only the tech industry, but for autos and dishwashers and microwaves as well. And it, I think, underscores the danger of the increasing tensions uh, in the Taiwan Straits.
1: So where does this leave you in Taiwan
2: policy? Worried. Uh, far more worried than I, than I was when I started.
1: Yeah, but do, I mean, are you a kind of, we have to protect Taiwan at all costs, or we have to avoid a conflict between Taiwan and China at all costs? Or because, you know, there are a lot of sort of realists in foreign policy who think, well, the United States is not going to go and send troops over, you know, we're not going to put ourselves at risk defending Taiwan. But the whole global economy is at risk in the case of Taiwan. So, how do you how do you deal with that? The global economy
2: being at risk is a crucial part of the of the calculus because in any sort of escalation scenario, a U.S. president is going to have to think not only about the military balance, not only about the geopolitical ramifications of acting versus not acting, but also that whoever decides to start shooting first in a crisis in the Taiwan Straits will also be held responsible probably for a dramatic disruption of the global economy, a, a recession whose cost is measured in the trillions of dollars. So when you start thinking through escalation scenarios, you've got to put the, the tech and the economic disruptions at the center of your calculus, I think, as they probably will be at the center of the calculus of any president, uh, if, if any future president does face that question.
1: That said, there's also a flip side. There's the silver lining, right? Everybody's dependent on them. And so the, the the ability to mobilize global support for a position to preserve this, uh, these supplies and to avoid the kind of conflict that interrupted is very high, right? I mean, every other country needs it, too. I think that's probably right.
2: My confidence level in that argument has been declining in recent years. And I, I guess I look at uh, European energy over the past couple of years where that argument was front and center for why it made sense for Germany to integrate deeply with Russia, become reliant on Russian gas. The argument was that will make Russian foreign policy more conciliatory and buy elites in both countries into the relationship. And the reality is that hasn't panned out exactly as Germany has hoped. And I think the what looks to be a Russian sabotage operation against the Nord Street pipelines is sort of an extraordinary example of just how badly that that has gone for Germany. So I I don't think we should rely too heavily on that argument, as much as I I hope that it's true. I'm I'm Nervous and increasingly so that it might not be as true as we'd like.
1: Yeah, well, I think that's a good point. And trying to end here on an optimistic note, I think one of the possibilities here is that we've learned something from Ukraine. Now, you know, I've been around long enough not to be too hopeful that we learn anything, but there are some lessons there. And for the Europeans, there's a lesson about their dependence on on Russian oil that might extend to this, just as you know, there's a, another subset of this whole story, which we haven't touched upon, which is, I think the United States and the Europeans have learned that they don't have the ability to replenish their weapons supplies as quickly as they thought they did. And that ability is dependent on these chips. And so that's, you know, another lesson of all of this. And of course, I think the, 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 the military lesson about defending a country like that, that's attacked by a neighbor is also one. And, and, and maybe all of these will help us manage our way through or better yet around a crisis like that in the future. One of the things that certainly will do it would be if policymakers read your book. I hope they do. To repeat, the title of the book is Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology. It's excellent. The stories of the evolution of the technology are full of people's stories. It's not not a dry book. And and I think will be uh, a pleasure to read for everybody as well as being real important. So once again, congratulations, Chris, on the book. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Perhaps we'll have you back at some point in the future, hopefully not to discuss a catastrophe in the Taiwan Straits, but something else. Uh, But in the meantime, thank you for joining us. Thank you, everybody, for joining us And uh, we'll be back soon with our next podcast. Bye-bye.